Well, hey everybody, it's me, Johnny Morgan, and Kit Alexander for another episode of the Filthy Lip Out. And I'm joined by, well, an ex-England man. I played with him uh, all through the amateur days. We turned professional pretty much the same time. The mighty man from up north, Artley Paul Way, Graham Storm. How are you doing, buddy? I'm all right, guys. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah bloody pandabby dozy. Uh, first question has got to be, I mean, it was out on Twitter just a couple of weeks ago, really, now, and you had a huge response to it. More surgery, unfortunately. Tell us what's going on, what you've had done, and how the recovery's going at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I did get a huge response from uh, the tweet, didn't I? I didn't think that many people liked me, to be perfectly honest, but, uh, yeah, I did pretty well, and a few of the guys uh, tweeted me from tour, Lee Westwood and Ian Porter, so that was nice of them. Uh, yeah, I've had another operation, third one, unfortunately, in uh, the last three years. And it's been, this one's more about taking away the pain, cutting the nerves, kind of fusing them. Doesn't sound very nice, but uh, it'll hopefully get me back out on tour in the spring. Uh, it's just one of those things that I've had to, to deal with over the last so many years. And hopefully this one will, uh, like I say, get me back playing. Is there a lot of rehab involved? Have you got to go for a lot of uh, physio and all that? Yeah, I've got to do a lot of TheraBand work and then uh, get onto the weights hopefully by February where I can develop the forearm muscles back to what they were before previously. Uh, it's been a, a difficult uh, period of time of trying to maintain being able to hit balls and play. And I had to hit balls before this operation again just to make sure that the surgeon knew exactly where the pain was coming from and, and all yeah. those areas. So... It's been a hard time since Wentworth in October. Obviously, I withdrew from that tournament halfway through the first round. And it was really disappointing because I was playing really good golf running into the... Even though I'd missed the cuts, I was playing nicely and I felt great in the warm-up. And then it just broke down, unfortunately. And I felt as though I was getting in the way of Stephen Gallagher and the other guy that we were playing with. And I just said, look, I need to just step out the way. I'm going to come off the golf course. And then I, I rang the surgeon straight away and that was it. We were booked in and that was operation time for January. Well, touch wood, mate. Everything goes to plan. But I was going to ask you, Graham, where did it actually happen? Where where did the incident happen? Where was it? Can you remember? The original injury. The original injury, yeah. Uh, I'd, in 2017, I obviously had an unbelievable year. You know, it's four mm. years virtually to the day that, you know, I won in South Africa and out time has flown. And... I look back at 2017 and although I had massive highs, I had a little bit of a low during the July, August period where my wrist just wasn't going to be able to keep on going. So I was having to have steroid injections to keep me going through the year. So I had two of those at the latter part of that year. And obviously it was a fantastic season and I wanted to hit the ground running in 2018, but unfortunately the wrist was, just wasn't going to allow it. And I played eight tournaments and that was when I made the decision that I had to go under the knife the first time. But it all stemmed from just repetition of it and thousands and thousands of balls throughout my career for over 30 years. And, you know, you kind of, back in the day, John, you'll know yourself that, you know, we were always told to keep fit and do this, that, the other, but we were kind of looking at golfers at, the, at that time and thinking, well, they're not that fit and they're not that strong. And, you know, I wish I'd watched more of Gary Player, I suppose, back in the day. But like my yeah. heroes were more like uh, Langer and Seve and Faldo. And obviously Faldo then went into the fitness regime late in the later uh, yeah. part of his career. But when you look at the guys before, they were all just kind of super flexible and just enjoyed themselves and looked like they were just having fun. Was that like was that like in a route or was that like beating balls off a mat or was it was it just just repetition of doing the same thing all the time? Or was it just, you know, maybe practicing a bad habit, you know, hitting off mats? Because mats, I find when you hit into them, like especially up north, I mean, when when winter closes in, unfortunately, what can you do? You go to a range, don't you? And you hit off a mat. And when you hit a mat, you, the, the, you know, the bounce back up of the club, you don't know it, but it jars a lot, doesn't it? It does a lot of work. And I, I felt it a few times after I've been to a range. Yeah, I think it's, it, it's, Probably a mixture of everything. Obviously, I grew up playing mm. Lynx golf as well. So, you know, you're hitting right. off a hard turf all the time. You're not yeah. just hitting off Parkland fairways or rough. And I suppose that, you know, mats, Lynx, turf, uh, 
like you say, practicing probably fault rather than uh, the right methods at times and maybe mm. just got myself in a, a bit of a bad situation the way that I was putting the wrist in position and maybe not doing it as correct as what you're supposed to do. Uh, many of those different things, really. Well, you, mentioned, yeah, you, you mentioned you had that great year in 2017 and the, the South African Open, as you say, almost four years ago to the day. Taking down Rory McIlroy in a playoff, is that the highlight of your career? That's right up there with uh, with them all, really, to be honest. I was asked this question uh, just last week and what would be the biggest highlight of my career? And I always look back to say that winning the amateur was massive for me because mm. of where I grew up, where I came from, how I had to fight so hard to be involved in international squads, never mind just you know, uh, playing the tournaments. I wanted to play for England. I wanted to play Walker Cup. And when I, when I won the amateur, it was like a huge relief because I felt as though I'd fulfilled my potential personally. Other people might think it was a fluke. Other people might think I was lucky. But for me, I was on a crest of a wave where that period of time in 1999, I was like finishing second. I was first. I was... I was always in the top five, top 10. I was never really outside of those uh, positions. And to win the amateur was, was massive. And that propelled me onto the next stage of my career. Although, yes, it didn't pan out exactly, exactly how I would have wanted. It took a long time for me to bed in into being a European tour player. But I'll be perfectly honest, that was more being starstruck of like mixing with the likes of Seve and Faldo and all these people that I'd watched over the years I just didn't quite take to it like Rory McIlroy did because he was a superstar in the making Matt Fitzpatrick do they I look at those guys and they, when they come out and I think they were ready I just wasn't but yeah. talking about the highlight yeah winning the amateur was a massive highlight getting the chance to play in the open playing the masters uh getting to rub shoulders with like the legend of the game Jack Nicholas. you know getting to play a practice round further in uh, in 2000 uh, at his own tournament. I wouldn't have got those experiences if I hadn't won the amateur. So, yes, I've had huge highlights as a professional, but the amateur was the one that propelled me to the next level. You talk about getting the uh, going to the Masters, you know, and people talk about rocking up and having a nice practice round with a couple of legends. Who was, uh, what was your practice round like around the Masters? Who did you uh, rub shoulders with? I've got a bit of a... Bit of a funny story about that one, actually. Uh, yes. When I got to the Masters, I met uh, I met John Simpson, who was manager of Nick Faldo at the time, and oh, yeah. we were we were chatting about different things and what have you. Anyway, it never it never materialised that I got to play with Nick in the uh, practice rounds, and I ended up putting my name down on the Tuesday to play with VJ Singh, Ernie Els, and somebody else and I can't remember who it was now for the life of me but anyway I was involved I was going to be involved in this like mega well I won't say four ball I'll say they were mega three ball and I was just joining them but it kind of I couldn't wait you know I was like sleepless night the night before and uh, I get on the practice area on the Tuesday and I'm warming up and I'm hitting balls and uh, lumpy Tim Heron comes over to me and uh, he says oh I'll see you on the first tee and I said, oh, I'm sorry. I said, I'm playing with so-and-so, so-and-so. I'm playing with VG. I'm playing. Oh, you're not like. I was like, well, what do you mean I'm not? He's like, well, you're down to play with me. And I'm like, oh, something, something's gone wrong here. And I'm, I'm in the midst of all these, like, mega famous golfers. And I'm like, what do I do? And he says, uh, he said, oh, just VJ Singh has crossed your name off and put Sandy Lyle's name down. So VJ Singh had gone into the registration area and switched my name and put Sandy Lyles down because Sandy Lyle had just pitched up. So I was, I was left with nobody to, nobody to play with. And I was like mortified. At what I, and I was thinking, what am I going to do? I don't know this guy from Adam. I've never heard of him, unfortunately. But I probably had the best practice round out of the three days that I could have playing with Tim Perry because oh, he was fantastic. Place. And I couldn't yeah. have met a nicer guy at that time, do you know what I mean? And he, he helped me massively. Yes, I didn't play great in the tournament, but I had a fantastic experience by looking back at that and saying, well, I got the chance to play with Tim Aaron, who was a fantastic golfer in his own right. 
and he taught me many different things about how to play Augusta and probably worked out for the better for me, really, although I was livid that (laughs) I wasn't getting to play with VJ or any else at the time. Did you you ever get to bring that up with VJ in later years when you were together at all? He's too big for me. I'm not handling him. He's still still going stronger. Forget yeah, that. He used to be a bouncer in Scotland, so you don't make the EJ. No, exactly. So go, going back to South Africa then, when you did um, take take out Rory McIlroy, the former world number one, and probably will be again one day, I'm sure he's so good. But, I mean, what was that like, man, to come down there, down the stretch, and, yes, you know, take the scalp out of Rory McIlroy and get the trophy? What was that like? It was an incredible experience because I'd never played in front of so many people around one free ball in, in my life. I'd played with some great players in the, in the past. I played with Ernie. I played with Jeff Ogilvie in a World Golf Championship in the last round, in the last group. But I'd never experienced so many people around each individual hall. And yeah. obviously everybody, everybody was wanting Rory to win because he was the superstar name at the event. But obviously, I was the party pooper being there and leading the tournament by threes, teeing off. And people forget that we played in a three ball that last day because obviously yeah. the, the, the playoff took so long mm. to get over. Yeah. Uh, people forget about the 18 holes previous and playing with Jordan Smith. Yeah. And yeah. where he'd come from, you know, number one Euro Pro, number one challenge to a... You could see he had a, an abundance of talent, and he was a fantastic player to like yeah. be to be in in the draw with, as well as playing with Rory. And he had such a quick start to the round where he was holding putts from all over. He was playing fantastic golf, and all all of a sudden he caught me up. And I think that kind of helped me a little bit because I wasn't just having to play against Rory, which was great because I'd never played golf with him ever even though yeah. I've known him for over 10-12 years and obviously Rory was looking at it and thinking well I've got to beat this other guy never mind me so mm. in the mix that Jordan was in it all the way right up until like 17-18 he still had a chance maybe to get in the playoff in eight, on the 18th and people like I say forget about the fact that he was involved in that group and like I said, that helped me because it took the pressure off a little bit because I didn't yeah. feel as though it was a match play situation of me against Rory. There was the three of us in the mix and we all had a really good go over the 18 holes and obviously it panned out in the end that I won the playoff. And it was a, just a, an amazing experience and it was you know something that I'll never forget. What so I, was down, I was down there the other day, and that trophy is magnificent, isn't it? What a trophy. What a trophy. Oh, loved it. I was going to ask what your thoughts were going into the playoff, because it always fascinates me when you go from, you've been playing stroke play, playing the course, and then you're in a match play situation, essentially. And especially in a, one like that, where you're playing Rory McIlroy, the guy with all the support, the major winner, the world number two at the time. Do you switch it up and go, yeah, I'm playing Rory McIlroy here and I've got to react to what he's doing or or treat it in that different way? Or is it simply just, there's a golf hole in front of me, I'm playing the course as it's presented and I just make the best score I can. What he does is what he does and we forget about that. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail right on the head. I mean, I can't compete against Rory on how far he hits it, how good he strikes it or anything like that. And I always had a game plan that week to play the 18th the same way every time. So it was just a five wood or a three wood off the tee. And then it was whatever mid to kind of low iron I had left into the green. That that tee shot isn't that difficult, but what you don't see is how, how much up the hill it plays. And even though you're playing at altitude, you know, you still need to like hit the ball so high to carry the last couple of bunkers. And I haven't got that in the locker and I knew I didn't have it in the locker, but I knew Rory did. And actually in like the eight, the the last hole of the 72, he hit the perfect tee shot. And to be fair, he hit a poor, poor wedge shot, which was kind of 
unexpected. I just, ex- I, at that time, I did expect him to knock it within 10, 12 feet and probably haul it and he would have won the tournament. Uh, but in the playoff, I just felt as though I just had to stick to my own game plan. I didn't have to think about what he was going to do. I knew that he would just be hitting driver off the tee every time. And I had to wait wait for him to make the mistake. I had to just keep doing what I was doing. It looked like I kept putting it in the same place, and I pretty much did. Uh, In the last playoff hall, I did think that I hold that long putt. I thought, oh, this could be amazing. I mean, it was tracking all the way, and I don't know how it missed, but... You know, obviously he made the mistake and it was just the way that it had to be. You know, I, I couldn't I couldn't compete against the way that he strikes it or anything like that. And I'd learned a valid lesson uh, from a previous playoff that I'd lost in 2014. And I mean, the amount of pressure that I was under that year, you know, financially and struggling to keep my card, uh, gone into the Amiga European Masters at Switzerland. That was it. Find him- Dave Litsky, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Finding myself in a position, again, you know, I'm playing in the last group, playing with Tommy Fleetwood and Brooks Koepka. You know, both guys probably just breaking through at the time, but we all knew how much talent they both had and the way that they hit the ball compared to the way that I do. And again, playing at altitude, you know, they're taking drivers and they're hitting shots and they're flying it beyond bunkers and they're doing everything. And I'm just playing my own game. And I learned a lot from that and and the... the playoff, because before the playoff against David Lipsky, I never really had time to collect my own thoughts of what I'm about yeah. to go into. It was literally sign your card, get on the buggy, get to the 18th tee and tee off. And that's why I made the mistake, hitting it behind the wall, the famous wall where Seve got you know, up and down from. And I had, to, I had to just collect my thoughts in the playoff or before the playoff against Rory. I had to make sure that I was... 100% ready. And if I'd not had that experience in 2014, I may have not won the tournament in South Africa. So it was a lot of things that I could draw on, even yeah. though, you know, back in 2014, I was really kind of fuming with myself that I'd made that mistake and that I didn't give myself the best chance possible at the time. Oh, good man. You, you did have that great year in 2017. And then as you've already mentioned the injuries come in in 2018 and it's not been a quick fix evidently it's we're now two three years into it you've obviously still got the desire to get back out on the tour as your tweet said what is it that keeps that love for the game and that love for competing burning through these difficult and frustrating times I think it's just the competitor that's within me, really. I don't want to give it up. And it, I'll be perfectly honest, there have been a lot of times over the last 18 months where I've thought, is it time to hang the clubs up? I, you know, I'm doing lots of other things with like the Golf Foundation, with the schools. Uh, yeah. I've now set up my own academy and I'm trying to build that as much as I possibly can, which is, you know, those, those things are doing really great. And, you know, I enjoy doing them, but that competitiveness inside me is just driving me on to, to get me back out on the golf course and playing tournaments. And that is just where I'm the most comfortable when I'm in and amongst, you know, the field of the players and practicing and doing the job that I love, I suppose, really. Uh, And the other thing that's really driving me on, I'll be perfectly honest, is the fact that, you know, we've talked about the, the, uh, playoff and the tournament in South Africa but my son who's nine now over the last couple of years has only really realized what I do and where I where I've been playing my golf and this or the other and him and my daughter and and my family are driving me on to I want to get out there and win a tournament you know how great is it when you see a a guy win a tournament and then the child you know runs on I've never had that experience and because that when I've won tournaments, I've been there on my own. And my family, I've been at tournaments, generally in the crash with the European Tour, who do a great job looking after the kids so that the wives yeah. can walk around the course. But I've never had that opportunity to win when my kids have been there. And I suppose that drives me on more than anything mm-hmm. in the world, really, because, like I say, they've now realised what I do. I mean, my son watches it probably three or four times, you know, every other month, really. He puts it on and he's watching it. And... I never forget that when I came off the course and I'd won the tournament and I spoke to my wife, 
she told me that obviously that Raw, uh, the kids wanted Rory to win it when they were teeing up. We were teeing off. They were shouting for Rory McIlroy <laughs> because they didn't really understand what was actually yeah. actually going on and what was going, could happen. So now that they've got the chance to watch it and they realise that I, you know I managed to win the tournament and do what I did, it drives you on to for yeah. more success. Super. I mean, you took you guys must have played a bit of golf together as well in the amateur days and coming up and in the early pro days. You're very much of the same uh, same sort of class. What are your recollections of each other from way back when? I've got a great oh. one about uh, Mogsy. Uh, I mean, really? We oh, had, I, always, uh, yeah. I love hearing old John stories. Anything embarrassing or that's just going to stitch him up. A uh, little bit of both. Uh, <laughs> I just remember going to uh, Woodall Spa and John will remember the, uh, we all used to get lined up and Keith Williams used to go along the line and then he got this, uh, was it called A-Star video system? That was it, and yeah. And we're on the mat and he's got this big, and it's a big massive unit. I mean, it's horrific to look at, you know, how far technology's come on oh. since then. But this, 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 machine and like camera work and this and the other was face on and it was all about like capturing the different moves and how we could then relate it to your golf and, and basically just putting a like putting together on like yeah you need to work on this and you need to work on that you can see the club does this so Moggsy gets on this A-Star machine and he's there and we're all like kind of watching what he's going to do. And you know what, you know, he's going to do something daft or he's going to make us all laugh or he's going to, you know, he's, he's such an entertainer. You know, you've, you've seen that and you know, the character that he is and you just can't wait to see what he's going to do on this machine. So he, he hits his golf shot. And then all the next minute he starts pulling moves from left, right and center. He's dancing and he's on the camera and we're all like giggling away, laughing. And Keith Williams is mortified going, you know, we're at England golf coaching. What is he doing? But we were just laughing at him and, you know, he was such a, a great guy to have around a squad that was probably quite intense. And you needed that, you know what I mean? You needed somebody that was going to lighten the mood and, and what have you. And you need that in squad environment to have a character like John. Oh, mate, you're too, too good. You're too nice. Thanks, Graham. Tap, man. <laughs> I did enjoy those tail. dancing days, mate. I did enjoy those dancing days. Yeah, bloody brilliant. John, for you, what 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 are your memories of uh, playing with Graham in those England squad days? And well, me and Graham never really got to um, play a lot together. Graham was in another league of his own. You know, he was he was top of the top of the tree when it came to the England and Walker Cup and all that. I mean, when he won the the British Amateur, you know, said it all really. Um, but you know, we would we would you know convoy you know meet up at tournaments and you know small chat and laugh again, reminisce. But um, he was on a crest of a wave, mate. He went one direction a lot earlier than most, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, he set a pedestal for a lot of us, you know, guys looking at Graham and just went, wow, Graham done that, man. We've seen him hit a load of shots. Yeah, we can do that. So he inspired us, he inspired someone like me to give it a really good go, you know, bite the bullet and go out there and try your best. So Graham was a massive influence especially coming into the pro ranks and show you what you can actually do as a, as a player. And, you know, you know, there was no limits, you know, the doors were open, especially when Graham done it, because we all thought Graham was a, a fantastic player, but we also thought we were pretty good as well. So it just made us feel even more confident. So, you know, it was, it was brilliant. It was a domino effect. And then, yeah. well, as Graham will tell you, we had so many great players come through off the back of that. Just a floodgate of talent just went vroom and just, got onto the big screen and did really well on the European tour and worldwide. Amazing, wasn't it, Graham? Yeah, it was. Thanks for those words, John. That's really kind. Uh, I think that when people probably seen me win like the amateur and do so well in 99 and play for England and this or the other, I wasn't a st ever a standout player that was a flusher or I could do this with a golf ball and, you know, I never had the perfect golf swing. I was just a grafter, somebody who would just grind it out as much as I possibly could, work on the uh, attributes that I had where I was probably better than most at, which was around mm. the greens, putting, short game, this, that, the other. You know, I'm, I remember Justin Rose's father saying to me once that he'd never seen somebody be able to lag a putter like I could. 
Like I was always deadly from 30, 40, 50 feet at yeah. getting it within a couple of feet and finishing the job off. And, you know, they're, they're the kind of things that you, you take with you and you remember. And, uh, but I was never a, I was never a flusher. I wasn't a Justin Rose who came along and flushed or a Max Harris at the time or people like that guys yeah. that had gone to America to do really, really well, like Paul Casey, Luke Donald and, and what have mm. you. Uh, but I had that determination to get to the top as much as I possibly and as quickly as, as I possibly could. And like I said earlier, I probably broke through a little bit too early in the sense of going onto the European tour and when obviously I fell off the European tour after 2001 and worked in the cake factory and had to work hard to work myself back up, uh, go into the Euro Pro re, uh, regional qualifier as it was in 2003, losing my father after the first round, teeing up the second round to, uh, to try and qualify because I was that determined to, to get back where I wanted to be. And at that time, I knew that that's what my father would have wanted. So there's, there's exactly. a load of things in the melting pot that drive me on. And like I said, you know, I'm determined to get back onto the European tour and be the best I possibly can be. I mean, that's great words for, you know, kids coming up through now. If they're going to listen to this, Graham, never give up. No matter how many of the chips may fall by the wayside, you know, you know, get back up, fight, 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 and fight again, and you'll get there. No doubt about it. Will and determination, everything. I mean, if you go fast forward from from that particular moment right till now and you watch the standard of golf now and you watch the kids and you know the youngsters coming through boys and girls I mean what are you thinking of the standard I mean it is baffling isn't it it is baffling I, I, I think it's incredible the way that the game's gone and uh, you know you touch on that how people are coming through thick and fast you know with being involved with the Durham County Union as like the coach and chairman for the boys and being involved in dialogue with England golf and what they're doing to uh, prepare these guys from when they turn from amateur to professional yeah. is so different to what we had when we were younger. I mean, the level of expectation is higher, but the, the amount of work that goes into it from the grassroots level is quite incredible. And then you look at the superstars of the game, like your Rory's, your Justin Thomas's, your now Bryson DeChambeau, Dustin Johnson and people like that. they they are megastars, aren't they? And, you know, yeah. you've got like Tommy Fleetwood in amongst that and other players. And you look at like so Justin Rose, who we grew up with, is still there amongst it as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, is still driving himself to, to be in that elite group of superstars. And the game is just getting bigger and better. And obviously it is changing with the way that technology's changed, the way that people's diets and fitness and all of those things are in again in the melting pot of to become a, a superstar player, but it doesn't take away the fact that you've got to grind your balls off. You've got to graft, you know. You've got to really work hard at getting to that elite level, and anybody can do it if you've got that drive and determination. Yes, you need talent. Yes, you need the luck. You need many other things that are going to be able to help you to get to that point. But you look at all those players that are at the top of the game right now and yeah. they, work, they work harder than anybody. That's why Lee Westwood, for me, is incredible. To be, where, to be where he is at the age that he is and how much work he puts in is, you know, it's quite remarkable what he's achieved in his game. You know, everybody can look at Lee and say, well, he's never won a major. Who cares? At the end of the day, the career that he's had and the amount of tournaments that he's won and the Ryder Cup that he's played in. <laughs> we don't take it. <laughs> anybody in the world would take yeah. it. You know, everybody yeah. wants to win a major. Everybody's dream is to put a green jacket on or lift the claret jug or win any major. But when you look at his career, it outweighs some of the other players that have, potentially, that have possibly won majors. You're exactly yeah. right, because majors are the currency by which we judge a player's career. And yes, to an extent, that should absolutely be the case. But, you know, you look at it and say, I'm going to slightly unfairly pick on the first person sort of one hit wonder that springs to mind, Sean McKeel. Is, is, has his career, 
him better than Lee Westwood's? Is he a better golfer than Lee Westwood? Because the one event he won happened to be a major championship. Whereas Lee Westwood has won all around the world on every tour, every continent. He's been so good for so long, a true ambassador of the game. Surely that is worth more. And I think there's a bigger discussion about how we really examine people's legacies in the game and how good they've been because whilst majors are important as you say it's not the be all and end all and you look at everything Lee Westwood's achieved in the game and what he's done it and how long he's been at the top for and that deserves way more recognition than the best player never to have won a major kind of tag or the oh yeah it's this but he never won the major he deserves more respect for that and there are plenty of other golfers as well that have done a lot without necessarily winning that major um, and you're quite right in what you say. And to still be there at, at the age he is now, as we see guys getting younger and better as they come through. Yeah. You look at his body shape now to when he first got on tour. That tells you the story, doesn't it? You know, he was a, a little bit of a chubby pup when he first got out in his early 20s. Nothing now, wrong with that, is there, Graham? Absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a chubby pup now when you're still in your 40s. Oh, true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, but you're right, exactly, Kit, there. You know, what he's achieved and how he's transformed his game to stay on top of the game is remarkable. You know, he's changed his physique. He's changed the way that he trains. He changed, the, you know, he's gone through different coaches and now he's doing it basically himself. You know, he's got his fiance on the golf bag, or, yeah. you know, and he's changed the way, his, his outlook of how to go about to get the best out of Lee Westwood. And it's working and... You know, I think if uh, the seniors tour in America are probably pleased that he's only 47 and he's not 49, ready to turn 50, oh. because could you imagine the impact that he would make playing on that tour? Look at the guys that have done it in the past, like Couples, Monty, uh, Goose, and, and then obviously there's Bernard Langer who just Nicholson never just stops and keeps on going. Yeah, You know, he's like Benjamin Button. He just seems to be getting younger and younger. But you, <laughs> you look at Lee and you just think, man, if he was about to turn 50, everybody would be petrified because he'd clean up. He'd absolutely yeah. clean up. And thankfully, he's not near 50 yet and he is only 47. And he's got so much to give. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I really do like about Lee is the fact that he supports the European Tour the way that he does you know, he plays all the big events. There's never anything said about, oh, well, he could have played in America and he's, you know, done this and he's come to Europe because he's getting this. He wants to be at the biggest European tour events to cement his legacy by winning those events. And that's why he's done what he's done. And mm -hmm. that's why you see him winning Abu Dhabi last year. You see him winning the race of Dubai last year. Incredible. You know, it's just a remarkable achievement after achievement. Yeah. One big achievement of yours that we've not touched on yet is the first European Tour win, the French Open. Um, I mean, back in, what was that, 2007 was that, I think? I can't, I can't even remember, it's that far back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 2007, <laughs> yeah. I thought I, I doubted myself for a second there. What was that like? Because as you say, it wasn't the easiest road for you. Even though you won the amateur championship, you weren't always this gilded wonder kid superstar destined for greatness. You had to work and grind. What were the emotions as you got that first European Tour victory in 2007? Uh, I think the emotions of winning in 2007 at the French Open were more of relief. Mm -hmm. You know, it was that monkey off my back a little bit because yeah. when I got back on tour after, you know, finishing third on the Challenge Tour in 2004, I hit the ground running this time. And 2005 and 2006 were all building towards success. And I was working on the right things and I felt comfortable. I wasn't uh, starstruck anymore. I was, I, I felt as though I belonged on the European tour. So winning in France didn't really come as a shock to me, as it may have done to other people. It was a not the French Open at the time, although it was a huge event and is a huge event and is one of the most illustrious, oldest events in the world. Uh, it was never the best feel because people were always trying to get primed up for playing the Open and where it sat in the calendar. Yes, you had top-class players like Bjorn, Monty, Soren Hansen, great players in a 
in and around uh, the event and other great European tour players to boot alongside that. It always looked it was always looked at it wasn't the best field that it could have been because for the money that we were playing for, you know, we we're playing for four million euros. It was a massive amount of money. And it was life changing for me financially in that sense at that time. Uh, but I just remember in that last round, you got, you know, again, was I fortunate the draw that I got? I played with Zane Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Zane Zane was on an invite and Zane was playing unbelievably well. And Zane was a flusher of the golf ball and probably didn't get the best out of the talent that he was born with. And he'd probably admit that he's a fantastic guy, fantastic coach now and fantastic player at the time. And was I, again, was I lucky to be drawn with him and not drawn with Ian Poulter or somebody else? You know, Ian Poulter was in the group in front of me, but, we seemed to egg each other on that round and we played fantastically well. We hit so many great shots between us, but I just managed to get the job done. But I remember standing on the 18th tee and the wind was pumping downwind. And it's a difficult drive in a hole at any time into the wind, off the, off the uh, side, downwind. And the ball was running really fast that year. The ground was bone dry and... Uh, Paris National probably the toughest course you play on the tour all year and now that it's fiery and playing like a Lynx course and it's difficult to control how the ball's going to react when it lands on the fairway so I'm standing on this 18th tee and I had Dominic Bott who was a really good caddy of mine back then and still is a very good caddy and does really well with other players that he's been with and I just remember standing on the tee and Poulter was in the fairway and he was kind of faffing about and messing around. Whether he was messing around to put me off or whether he was messing around just to, you know, prove a point that, you know, he was taking his own time and he was going to do it his own way and this or the other. Maybe he knew the situation. I don't know. And I'm good friends with Ian and we've had a bit of banter about it. And it kind of, a good caddy at that time is what you need to then just say, look, take a step back, relax. It's pumping downwind. It's nothing but a two iron. And I had one of those Callaway, great big Bertha two irons. And this thing just went for miles. And yeah. It was perfect for the situation at that moment in time to just bang it down there. And obviously you're in a great frame of mind. You're in the zone. And I just flushed this two iron right down the middle of the fairway. And as you know, at Paris National, that's not the job done. The job no. next is to it to an island green, downwind, the flags five on, six from the left, right on the front left portion of this green. And there's loads of green. It is a massive green, but you can't see it because it's like you just see water. That's all you yeah. see, see nothing else. And I'm standing in the fairway having it this great T-shirt. I've got 183. I'll never forget the number. 183 to the pin. Like I said, it's pumping downwind. It can't get anywhere near this flag. It's just literally get it on the island. It's like, just get it on the green wherever. So I said to Don, what do you think? Is it six iron? He's like, no, it's seven iron. And I'm scratching my head thinking, I know it's 183 and it's pumping downwind, but I just can't see seven iron getting across the water. What am I, what am I going to do? And I'm <laughs> trying to sit, I'm trying to convince him it's six iron. <laughs> and he's telling me, no, it's seven iron. And he knows the situation and I don't. And, uh, I'd played three perfect holes previous to that, 15, 16, 17. They were all pars, but I played them perfectly. Put them and how in tough position. is that right there? My goodness. Oh, it's just the hardest. And he convinced me to hit seven iron. I'm standing over this seven iron. Obviously, I'm shaking like you can't believe. And I'm thinking, God, if I don't strike this, I'm swimming. I'm literally swimming. I've not, you know, and then I'm thinking if I thin it and it goes too far, it's not stopping now. Anyway, I managed to hit this unbelievable shot into the green. And I say unbelievable, I'm like 50 feet away. But I'm like, (laughs) can't believe it. I'm on the green, job done. Let's get on the green. And then you get to the green and you're walking on and you walk over those little bridges. And I'm surveying the putt because I always like to survey the putt as I'm walking towards the ball. And I'm looking at this putt, I'm thinking, how am I going to two-putt this? What? If I hit the putt too hard... But you're it's the going best the... lag putter in the world, as uh, well, Rizzi's dad said. Thankfully, that came into my mind. I, but I kid you Yay. not, that came into my mind. But 
thanks thanks to Ken, it it, it kind of just took over the the fear of the pub. But as I'm surveying it, I'm thinking I could do this in the water. I could do this. I could do that. I'm thinking, oh my god, there's all these like thousands of people around the green. They don't care if I win. I'm not French, am I? So they're probably not that bothered. But I surveyed the pot. I managed to get my thoughts together. I did honestly think about what Ken had said about getting it really close and being a great lag putter. And I managed to get it to like two, two and a half feet, which was incredible because you're going up and over a crest, kind of right to left. And as it goes more right to left, it goes towards the hazard. And if you get it low, it's going like 10 feet. So I managed to get it the right side and managed to stand over the putt and knock it in and, it was then just wait and see what was going to happen. Was Soren Hansen or Simon Khan going to catch me or take us into a playoff? So I just stood in the cabin with uh, McCaddy at the time. And when they when it was finished and it was all over, it was just a matter of, of relief. But it was, uh, it, it was a fun taxi ride back home because we had to get a taxi to uh, the airport and Scotchy, who used to work for Soren Hansen. So Soren yeah. finishes second. Obviously, I've won. I'm sat with my caddy. We're in this taxi, and we've got this massive magnum of champagne, and we're swigging this thing all the way back to the airport. And we're just having great crack, and it was, it was just great fun. But, uh, yeah, there was some, uh, some good times then. Oh, brilliant. What a great what are the other good times that spring to mind for you? Just aside from necessarily the goal from the winning, just the wonderful moments, the great people you met, the, the stories that you've shared. Yeah, any yeah. funny stories? <laughs> well, there's some stories that you can never repeat, as you know. As, as you have to st- what, what happens on tour stays on tour. But you meet so many, you meet so many great people. And the, the one event, I suppose, that I look forward to outside of the tournaments that I've either previously won or uh, the big events like playing at Wentworth, I always look at the Dunhill links and I look at yeah. that event and you're mixing shoulders, you know, you're rubbing shoulders with people that you probably would never, ever get the chance to meet. And I've built up some really great friendships uh, with people like Ronan Keating, Damon Hill, Steve Redgrave, uh, you know, other people that have gone to those events and I've, you know, built up a friendship with Johan Rupert, whose event it is, and I've yeah. been able to stay at his house in uh, Leopard Creek on numerous occasions when I've played the tournament. And, you know, you get looked after like royalty. But that's the tournament that I, I look forward to the most because you get to meet so many superstars. Like, you get to meet famous footballers, get your picture taken with Rude Hullet. Uh, Del Piero, people like that, and you're just thinking, wow. And and then you become awestruck again. Do you know what I mean? You can't believe <laughs> yeah. this is happening to me. But the funny thing about it is, they can't wait to meet you, and they can't wait to have a picture with you. And I'm thinking, I'm only Graham Storm. I'm only just a European tour player. This and the other. You know, you want to go and get your picture taken with Lee Westwood, Darren Clark, or whoever. You know, and but these people, like these famous people, as and also these business people can't wait to meet you and get to pick your brains. And I think that as a tour player, we're very fortunate to be able to mix in those circles and build up friendships with those kind of people. And they're they're, they're always the memories that I like to take away and talk about when I'm talking to young kids that are aspiring to be a, a good golfer or a professional golfer and, you know, these are the thing. These are the things that you can get to do if you really work hard and achieve great things. Oh, so, some amazing well, names there. Oh, mate, oh, I like amazing. the name dropping again. Yeah. Oh, mate, it's all right. It's all right. I know. I was going to ask you. You know, there's been a, um, Sean Murphy, the snooker player, has come out with uh, saying, "I know you, 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 you can dabble a bit in the snooker world. You're a natural kind of." I hand coordination kind of guy and we're dead ball games golf and snooker so which one do you reckon is the artist snooker or golf because he reckons snooker Sean Murphy can play off a decent handicap as well you know he's yeah, a he bloody good player so um but yeah what do you reckon bud I'm gonna put it to you well, I know Sean uh, pretty well actually because uh, we were involved with the same management group for a year or so and uh yeah 
he is a really good golfer. I think his dad was a pro actually, and was, we yeah. played golf at Moortown, and he flushed it. To be fair, you know, he was just yeah. a natural, naturally gifted. He had to go open could... qualifying as well, didn't he? He had to go yeah. open qualifying. Yeah, he's a good golfer. Uh, but to answer your question, which one's harder? I'm going to have to go with golf because <laughs> there's so many different elements to deal with. Yeah, uh, you know, wind, rain. Uh, bad lies, the, the bad lies, the different lies. grasses that we play in, the different continents that we play in. And don't get me wrong, if you were to ask me a, the question of what, what's harder to hit a 180 or a, a 147, then a 147 is way harder than hitting a 180 in, you know, yeah. in those two respective sports. Yeah. But golf is so unpredictable and you just don't know, don't know from one day to the next what you're going to get in front of you as an exam. And that's the difference between them, where snooker, it's literally the balls are set up exactly the same. They don't break the same, granted. You know, the balls can no. go anywhere, and it is so difficult to make high breaks. And, you know, like my eyes break something like 69. But those oh, guys, when they're, when, when, when they're having a break at 69, they're fuming. When... They're looking to hit centuries, you know, one four seven so difficult to do because you need yeah. the look of the you know, the look of the balls to fall in the right place. And that is why when you look at somebody like a Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's just a magician, a genius of his game. And I think that the spots are both very different, both very difficult. Yeah. But yeah. like I say, the elements that come into play within golf makes the game so much more difficult. It's dead easier if you're playing week in, week out, day by day, and the conditions are identical at 25 degrees, there's no breeze, the grass is perfect, the greens are running pure, then the game becomes relatively more simple. But that's not, yeah. the, that's not the way that it is because once, <laughs> when you go to a, a Masters or an Open Championship or you're playing in Malaysia where the grain's all over the place and it's going against the slope and your head's like <laughs> frazzled with which way is this puck going to break? I think that it, it becomes more difficult. And I think that he would admit that if he was to go and play in those conditions, he, he would realise how difficult this game is. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll get him on, mate. We'll get the truth out of him. Either him, Sean Murphy... Um... You know, Ronnie, Stevie, Stevie uh, Davis, or Stevie Henry, one of them. We'll try and get them on and see what their point of view is, mate. That'll be good. But I agree with you. Golf yeah, all the way. Great point, well made. It's the conditions, isn't it? You know, snooker. Yeah. It's very difficult, but you know the exam put in front of you. Golf. Yeah. One day to the next, even on the same course, is a totally different beast. Let alone. Well, the perfect perfect break is one four seven. The perfect round of golf is birdie in every hole. That's never been done. So there you go. It's like, you know, it's yeah. uh, proof in a pudding, isn't it? Perfection. Yeah, that's exactly right. You mentioned earlier, Graham, all the other stuff you're doing away from playing the academy. You do a lot of work with the Golf Foundation and helping out juniors. How important is it for you to be giving back to the game that has given you so much? Yeah, it's massive, actually. I mean... Uh... About five, six, seven years ago now, I got involved with a school. Uh, I was asked to kind of mentor these students who uh, had aspirations of becoming good golfers. And to be fair, we've got golfers that have gone to uh, college in America. We've uh, won the English team's schools championship. We won at Woodall Spa. So to get involved with those was the starting point. And then when I got injured in 2018, I then got involved with the Golf Foundation and went into schools to deliver tri-golf. Mm -hmm. And mm. It's, it's so important that we give kids the opportunity to try so many different sports. And football's always been my first love and probably always will be, as in I would watch a football match over watching any golf tournament, to be perfectly honest. As, as long as Liverpool win, obviously, but that, that, that's just the way that I am. I, I was brought up in an environment that football was always the first sport and I suppose I've always loved it because of that, but there are so many sports that kids can be able to access now where golf was always seen as the sport that you couldn't access. 
it was for the rich. It was for people who had the uh, free time to be able to go to the golf club, go to the golf pro, get lessons, this, that, the other. It was an expensive sport to play. And it's not really like that anymore. And I'm glad that the barriers have been broken and the inclusivity of golf now with uh, men and women playing in same tournaments and uh, boys and girls about to play in the same tournament this year with England golf. It's huge to grow the game. And that's I just wanted to be a part of that. And I'm only a small part of it. But I'd really like to see the game grow as much as possible within the schools. And yeah. we've all done our, our things. You know, I look up to Paul Laurie, what he does in Scotland, Stevie Gallagher with yeah. the foundations that they have. You've now got Robert Rock that's got his own junior too, which is fantastic. You know, yeah. I have my own junior open and mini storm series and things like that. Obviously not possible last year due to COVID, but looking to relaunch it again this year. Uh, just any, any time that you can give kids the opportunity to pick up a golf club, try the sport that delivered so much to me. And I think that that's what, again, it drives me forward to, to try and get the, these kids to have the opportunity to, to have a go. How much satisfaction does it give you seeing the smile on the kids' faces when they do find a love for golf? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, when I went into the schools to do the tri-golf, what I found was, like you say, the kids smiling and, they'd never had the opportunity to try playing golf. And yes, it's with foam golf balls. It's with plastic clubs. You're doing it on the concrete or on the grass or in the classroom, but it's just a different sport to try or exercise, you know, because you can make the games fun. You can make the games more challenging. You can get the kids to run around and obviously in a safe way, but you can get them to run around and exercise and, it's just another activity or game that should be on the curriculum for every school. And mm. I suppose that's what the Golf Foundation, that's what I'm trying to, to get into these schools. So with my academy, we're looking to go into schools in Richmond, where my academy is. We're possibly going to be looking to go into schools in Durham with something else that I'm looking to try and launch. Uh, we're, we're looking to get involved with the Festival of Sport. I don't know whether you've seen that with uh, Will no. Greenwood and Mike Tyndall. So oh, we're, yes. looking to, yeah. we're looking to get involved with that. And we're in talks with those now to, to, uh, to finalise that, really, to be perfectly honest. And that would be a great platform for us to show that we can deliver golf to anybody. And anybody can come along and try it. And for adults or children, but just trying to grow the game as much as you possibly can to, I suppose, just get people out to be active. And in these current times, it's just such a shame that golf's not the one sport that could lead the way where I'm sure it would be quite accessible and safely done to be able to get out onto the fairways. You know, you're seeing people on social media you know, walking the dog on golf courses and you think, well, why couldn't they just have a set of golf clubs on the shoulders and go and hit yeah. a few balls around a golf course? And even if it was just one balls, you know, for people's, you know, mental state and what have you, it's just the freedom of getting out in the open air and getting onto the golf course. I don't see the problem in it, but we have to abide by the rules and we have to, uh, I suppose, understand what the government are trying to do and hopefully... Golf will be the first sport back. Well, mate, I wish you all the best. And what is it? The um, yeah, just hope the foundation really kicks off and running. You find the next superstar, mate, for all of us to watch. You know, and uh, but no, talk about superstars, boy or girl. I mean, who are you expecting this year to do really well on the European tour and worldwide as well? I'm just going to put you on the spot now with uh, regarding the golf. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know much, that much about. The, the ladies side of it I've done uh, really see a lot of it um, mm. you know there's a there's a girl actually from my, our area uh, I think she's called Jodie Hewitt Shadford or Shadford Shadoff is it uh, she, Shadoff. Yeah, yeah. yeah she looks a really good talent and has obviously done well on the LPGA so she's one person's name that I would look out for on the ladies side but on the on the men's side there, there's, there's an, an abundance of talent out on the European tour and, yeah. you know, with some of the chances that some of the 
the, the guys had last year, likes of uh, Laurie Cantor took his chance, Marcus Armitage took his chance, you know, and they're, and they're guys that are, are getting the opportunity to play on the European Tour in a Rolex Series event uh, this week in Abu Dhabi that they probably wouldn't have got previously. Uh, so that's great what the European do, Tour did by getting those guys in a in a category, you know, where they finished last year because it was a difficult situation yeah. that the Tour had to deal with. You know, I'm I sit on the committee and we we sat and talked about it and how do you make the right decision on whether you roll it over or whether you scrap the air or what do you do? And I think the Tour did an unbelievable job and I can only yeah, commend yeah. them for what they did. They did an unbelievable job of getting tournaments on, getting sponsors, uh, giving people opportunities to be able to play. And Keith Pelly and his team should be well, you oh, know, yeah. thanked for what they did and what they've done. And they've they've pushed the barrier again for, for this year and they've you know they've set a decent schedule and hopefully there'll be a few more tournaments come back on. But to answer your question, who to look out for, I think it's going to be a really big year for Tommy Fleetwood. I think yeah. that that everything that's gone on last season <clears throat> and the, not winning the Open in 2019 and deservedly so to Shane Lowry winning the event, I was there and he was magnificent. But I think that not winning that tournament is driving Tommy on. And I think it could be a very big year for Tommy Fleetwood. You can see the way that he's going about his business. He is a grafter. He works really hard. Uh, I believe he's 30 today, is he? And yeah, the 19th. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he would be the one standout player this year that could potentially add a major to his resume, win a huge tournament, or win the race to Dubai again, because I think that he's driven that much. What about Ryder Cup? Come on, Ryder Cup. Who we got? I don't. Huh? I don't even know who's in the team at the moment. Who, who's in, oh, who's in the... the... The team, it'll be totally different by the time... It's irrelevant, mate. Just did you, did you fancy whistling straights America or Europe? Obviously, my heart would want Europe to win. But my head probably says that America at this moment in time are so strong with DJ being world number one, uh, Brooks Koepka, Colin Morikawa... All these players, you can just keep naming them. Justin Thomas, Bryson DeChambeau, and then you've got Ricky Fowler to back them up and Bubba Watson. The list just keeps... Here at the minute, he's not <clears throat> looking. That's that's how good they are. That's that's where, yeah, so the list is just so long uh, was, of a talent. A little look at the world rankings yesterday. So the top 12 Americans... What world ranking do you think the 12th highest ranking American is right now? What a question. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. John, you got a punt? I'm going to go 20th. 16th. Wow. 12 so there's that many in. Are currently in the top 16 in the world rankings. Wow. So that shows the strength they're going to have. But they're always the favourites on paper and <clears throat> Europe performs above its station normally. So Yeah, I think I think America's always favourite on paper for what you've just said. There's so yeah. many in the top twenty in the world. There is the PGA is a dominant force within golf and everybody watches it and everybody sees these unbelievable players week in, week out. And they have so many great players. I mean, look at Harris English winning, uh, Kevin yeah. Nard and all these different players. Names that probably don't even get thrown in the mix, but they're so good as golfers. They, there's such an abundance of talent in, in, in America, and it obviously is difficult to break through. You have to have that extraordinary talent to break through in America. And <clears throat> But Europe still have that team camaraderie, spirit, yeah. drive, that where they're always the underdog. And we've come out so many times on top since mm. the mid 90s it's quite incredible to see how many times we've won the Ryder Cup against America and the talent that America have had since then to now is remarkable and like we touched on with Lee Westwood the fact that Lee Westwood could be pegging it up in the next Ryder Cup at the age of 47 is an an achievement in itself 
Yeah. And there's so much golf to look forward to this year. It's going to be awesome. Graham, we hope you're out there sooner rather than later in the spring. Yes, come on, Graham. And tee it up. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolutely brilliant chat. Uh, thank you, as always, to everyone for listening as well. You can follow us at Filthy Lip Out on Twitter. Please remember to like and subscribe and leave reviews wherever you are listening to this podcast. It helps us get found. That's all we've got time for for now, but we will see you again next week. Take care, everybody.